Welcome to Museum Archipelago. I'm Ian Elsner. Museum Archipelago guides you through the rocky landscape of museums. Each episode is never longer than 15 minutes. So let's get started. When Anna Elizabeth Gonzalez was growing up in Panama, the history she learned in school about the Panama Canal told a narrow story. The history of the canal that was told here was told in a way that was very politically sensitive at the time. So it, it didn't want to ruffle any feathers. It's mentioned in schools, but not in depth. Up until 1979, the United States fully controlled the Panama Canal and a five-mile zone on either side. And until 1999, the United States jointly controlled the canal with Panama. The presence of the United States and the politics of the canal meant that the safest story to tell was one that was mostly focused on the technological feat of building it. The history was very carefully constructed so that it praised the engineering feat of the United States, but it completely ignored the fact that Panama was home to people from 97 different countries to build this canal, which caused such a diversity in our country. Ana Elizabeth Gonzalez is now executive director of the Panama Canal Museum in Panama City, Panama. Hello, my name is Ana Elizabeth Gonzalez, and I'm executive director of the Panama Canal Museum, El Museo del Canal. Gonzalez became director in 2020, but the Panama Canal Museum itself opened in 1997, two years before control of the canal was returned to Panama. The museum, a nonprofit which is not government funded, was created out of a hope that, among all the changes, Panama's complex relationship to the canal would not be forgotten. I was in school at the time, but I remember it was, I think, the then president of Panama and the mayor and a lot of other people that created the board of trustees. And I think it was the idea that this history of this struggle to gain our land and to find our sovereignty and the generational struggle that had been going on, there was a fear that it would have gotten lost in memory or uh, forgotten. So I think the, the museum back then was created to preserve and, and study and research everything surrounding the canal history and promoting the education of what an impact it had. So for Gonzalez, the Panama Canal Museum is really a museum about Panama. I think people come with the preconception that the museum is just going to be about how the canal works and how the locks open, filled with water. And we don't really have that in depth here. That's The canal has a visitor center that you know explains how it works in terms of technology and engineering. But it's something we just brush over here because we, we deep dive into the history of Panama as a point of connection and as this route that changed the world. The first gallery of the museum begins long before the canal was constructed and highlights the unique features of Panama's geography a small isthmus that's both the only way to travel between the North and South American continents by land, and also the narrowest land between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. We've been a trade route or a, or a route of connection ever since Panama, the, well, the territory sort of resurfaced from, from the oceans, because we were always a bridge uh, between North and South America for animal species and then indigenous peoples. So we've always sort of been a point of trade and contact, both culturally and, and commercially. You enter the first exhibition space, which is the sort of emergence of Panama as 
uh, land in this sort of omni-globe that we have. And you see how it connects both land masses of North and South America. And you go through the exhibition towards the pre-colonial living traditions and what Panama was like before uh, the Spanish colonization, then the importance of Panama as part of the Spanish crown and monarchy uh, until 1821. After 300 years as part of the Spanish monarchy, the Isthmus's geography started to look even more useful to outside interests during the 19th century, as global trade started to pick up. Here, goods and passengers could bypass a much longer and more dangerous journey around the Strait of Magellan on the southern tip of South America. In 1855, a railway was built across the isthmus, facilitating the movement of people and goods in time for a wave of the California gold rush. And then in 1881, if I'm correct, the French, after the success of the Suez Canal, the French posed to building a canal through Panama. Unfortunately, due to yellow fever and other diseases and badly managed funds, the enterprise did not succeed, but it was bought from the French by the United States through the Treaty of Hay Buno Barilla, which we signed upon getting our independence as a country. The 1903 Treaty of Hay Bruno Varilla granted the United States complete ownership over a 50-mile slice of land that was to be the canal. In the gallery, visitors walk through a hallway that's completely covered in words from that treaty. Powerful words like perpetuity and authority look down on them. The United States had rights for, well, for it forever. It it wasn't even a question of whether or not they owned it. They owned the land where it was going to be built and the land where they had to operate and the land where they had to create their offices and their ports. Back then, the country was completely divided through a gap that was considered the canal zone, and that was United States territory. And Panamanians were not free to wander into it. And it did separate the country in a massive way. And that treaty, which no Panamanian negotiated or signed, was actually the seed of our struggles with international relations during the whole 20th century until the canal was transferred back to Panama in 1999. But first, the massive task of actually constructing a canal through that slice of land. The project required enormous numbers of people, and canal administrators tried to entice workers from all over the world to take part in the project. Yet another way that this isthmus was at the forefront of a more globalized world. We had people, obviously, from the Caribbean. We had people from Europe. We had people from Asia. So there's a big mix and such a big diversity that came with the construction of the canal, and many of them remained in the country after the canal was built and they made their life here. But what is also not known is the amount of racism and discrimination that these people faced. Because in order to work in the Panama Canal construction, you were assigned either a gold roll or a silver roll. So the payroll was either you were paid in American gold or in Panamanian silver. And the American gold was reserved for white Americans. And sometimes there were some exceptions with some Europeans But the remainder population, whether you were Asian, Arabian, European, or even Panamanian, you were paid in Panamanian silver. The living standards for silver roll were appalling. The law even, because I'm I'm assuming some of it was imported from the Jim Crow laws of the time, they had segregated entrances for silver roll and gold roll. The schools were segregated. And this is a history that not many people in Panama or elsewhere know. 
And I think a lot of that ripples into certain racial tendencies and racism that permeates our society today. After taking people through the construction of the canal, the museum's exhibits end abruptly in 1964, with an event known as Martyrs' Day in Panama. And it ends in 1964 because we had a very significant moment in history at the time where students from a high school in Panama peacefully protested with their flag towards the canal zone. And there was a scuffle, there were a lot of tensions, and in the end, many of the students died, shot by canal zone police or otherwise, and the flag was torn. And at that moment, Panama became the first country to break relations, diplomatic relations with the United States. And we still commemorate the day as the Day of the Martyrs that day. And that was a turning point in the negotiations of a new treaty for the canal. And that's where we are at the moment because the next exhibition rooms are completely empty at the moment. We're continuing the renovation plans for those. Gonzalez and her team are developing the galleries that feature the rest of the story up until the present day. This includes the Torrijos-Carter Treaties in 1977, which defined the handover of the canal at the end of the 20th century and the 1989 U.S. invasion of Panama. When the new galleries open, it will be the first time much of this history has been presented in a Panamanian museum. Yeah, it's our next challenge. Many people may not know this. In 1968, we had a coup d'etat and the government was deposed and we had a military regime. And it's a history that not many Panamanians talk about till this day. There's still a lot of sensibilities, I think, that could be heard from it because there are still people around that were part of both the military regime and families of the victims that it disappeared. But it was a big part of our history and it was a big part of the negotiations for the canal because General Omar Torrijos, who signed the canal treaty with President Carter from the United States, was in fact a dictator. And not not everybody agrees on that terminology, but he eliminated political parties. He eliminated media that was not government controlled. We had another dictator until 89 when the United States, following a clause from the treaty from 1903 and also 77, which said, they can invade Panama at any point where they, when they think the canal is being endangered, invaded the country to a lot of human losses, but managed to successfully arrest our dictator. All of that is a very difficult history to share. And I think that's why maybe in 97, when the museum was created, it was still too soon. But it's something that we're definitely going to tell now. And I think it's going to be a really important dialogue with the people of Panama uh, to remember maybe parts of history that are hurtful to remember, maybe embarrassing to remember, but that need to be remembered in order not to be repeated. Gonzalez says that the new galleries featuring recent history will open in September 2022. In the century since the canal was built, the globe has only become more connected, and the canal remains the world's biggest trade route. Gonzalez is sure that Panama's place as a global point of connection will continue to grow, and wants to make sure there's a museum that tells that story. I think it's important for people to know that the canal is not just a recent history. To know that Panama has been a link between peoples and and cultures and a point of trade since we've existed is, is quite important. We've been geographically blessed and such a small country plays such a big impact in the world that it's an honor for me to direct the museum that tells that story. This has been Museum Archipelago. Museum Archipelago is turning 100 and you're invited. Whether this is your first episode or your 98th, I'm so happy that you're listening. 
How I want to celebrate is by hearing from you. To do that, I've set up a place on the internet where you can send a voice memo to be included in the 100th episode. There, you'll be presented with two questions. One, where do you listen to Museum Archipelago? And two, what museum would you like to hear about on a future episode of the podcast? You can answer by recording audio of yourself or just writing in a text field. Visit museumarchipelago.com party to join the celebration. Looking forward to seeing you and thanks for listening. Museum Archipelago is an ad-free, listener-supported podcast, guiding you through the rocky landscape of museums. Thanks so much to everyone who supports the show by being a member of Club Archipelago. You can join them by going to jointhemuseum.club. Thanks again for helping make this show possible. For a full transcript of this episode, as well as show notes and links, visit museumarchipelago.com. Thanks for listening. And next time, bring a friend.